0: Amen. That was a good uh, story behind that hymn and how we received it. Imagine that. Isaac Watts, as a teenager, was writing some of the great hymns that we're singing. Imagine that. And they, uh, they, they don't seem to think that teenagers can do much. I disagree with that. Wow. Well, I uh, want to also welcome the Almonia family back. At least I think the family came back with you, did they, Brother Ferdy? Yeah. Did you get Danielle safely down to... The, College there, good. What was it like saying goodbye to her? <laughs> it's a sorry sight, isn't it? You know when you have to give your daughter away like that. Well, we'll keep we'll keep her in prayer. All right, and um, we have uh, a new young lady at the church, Naomi, and uh, we're excited that uh, she's uh, here with us and part of the uh, uh, the Bible College. We welcome her. Let's make her feel like part of the family. Tonight, let's take our Bible and open up to the book of Hebrews. Now, we're in chapter 13, and we've been working on Hebrews for over a year and a half. Now, we've had a number of interruptions in there, mind you, different things happening on Wednesday nights that have taken us away from our study. But we get back to it, and then we keep on moving, you know, section by section, and we've come through almost the entire book of Hebrews. Um, We're going to be looking tonight at this uh, section from nine to 15. And after tonight, there's only two more sections and we're done completely, the entire book of Hebrews. Um, I'm an old paper and pen kind of guy. And so I write out my my messages on paper, right? So I've got a stack of papers now on Hebrews. So um, I gotta find a place for that so I don't lose it. In chapter 13, Paul finishes this fantastic book by giving us a series of four admonitions. Now, if you'll remember, there are three words, each beginning with the letter C, that seem to characterize the book of Hebrews. And what's the first letter C? Hmm. What is it? You remember? Christ. Christ. He is the main focus of the book of Hebrews. It's all about Christ, okay? And then there's another word beginning with C. What is it? Covenants, right, covenants. And uh, Paul talks about the Mosaic covenant and then uh, the new covenant, and he gives all the explanations on that. And then there's a third word beginning with C. What is it? Commitment. Commitment, and that's uh, on our part as we make commitment. The Word of God does no good whatsoever unless we take heed to it. And so we need to make commitments in our heart every time we study God's Word. Well, in chapter 13, the first four verses, Paul gave us the first of the four admonitions telling us to be careful to maintain Christian love. And then in verses 5 to 8, he wrote about being careful to maintain Christian submission. That is an earmark of uh, christianity the world is um is rebellious uh the world is in anarchy uh the world loves to protest the world loves to rebel and in fact unsaved people are kind of characterized as uh, children of rebellion something that ought to characterize Christians is submission. Now that's to proper authority and submission to God first and foremost. So that's a very important section. Now tonight we're going to look at the third admonition. And the third admonition is simply this, be careful to maintain Christian doctrine. So we've looked at Christian love, Christian submission. Tonight we're going to look at Christian doctrine. Now doctrine is that set of beliefs or body of beliefs by by which we live our lives. Doctrine defines who we are. Everyone has some kind of system of belief that they live their life by. And uh, that system of belief is called doctrine. So we need to be careful to maintain Christian doctrine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's begin our study tonight. Now, our Heavenly Father, we bow once again at your mighty throne, and we acknowledge your lordship in our lives Lord, we thank you for the last couple of Wednesdays when we've studied Christian love and Christian submission. Father, tonight, help us with Christian doctrine. This is so important. We pray that you'd please use your word in our hearts tonight to make commitments to you that would be real and long-lasting. And so please have thine own way. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. And so Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9, Paul writes, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Now, to be carried about, I don't think is such a good thing. I don't think it's good that we be carried about by anything except maybe the Holy Spirit. But uh, some people are carried about by their emotions. And one day they're up, and the next day they can be down in the depths. One day they can be on board and we're with you, and the next day they've cooled right off and they say, goodbye, I'm out of here. And so uh, some people are carried about by, um, oh, wherever the money is, you know, their commitment is to the money. Some people, some young guys are committed to where the girls are, wherever the girls are. That's where they're committed. You see, it doesn't matter what's happening. Goodbye. I'll see you later. And they're off chasing some, some new girl. I don't think it's good to be carried about by anything except the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we're told, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings as what? Eagles. Eagles. Now, there's something to be carried about on. And those wings as eagles, I believe, uh, refer to power of God uh, through the Holy Spirit into our lives. So there's something there. Um, Now, tell you what. Let's keep our finger there in Hebrews, and let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Go back a little bit to Ephesians chapter 4. We have this similar thought, this similar idea that Paul writes about here. So he says, uh, be not carried about. And in Ephesians chapter 4, I'd like you to read out loud verse 14. Do you have that? Ephesians 4.14, read it out loud together with me now. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Um, What we're studying tonight is supposed to be good doctrine good doctrine. Be careful, be careful to maintain good doctrine. And so Paul says here, be not carried about with these diverse and strange doctrines. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. A number of years ago, um, a man had a great uh, ministry. Um, he was the Bible answer man. He got old and passed away, and another guy took over. His name was Hank Hanegraaff. Hank Hanegraaff's got a radio program and all that, Bible Answer Man and so on. He'd uh, answer people's questions, and Hank got a little bit uh, wonky on his doctrine. And then not long ago, like maybe a year or two ago, Hank converted to become a Greek Orthodox. Now that's serious bad news, folks. Uh, so anyhow, he's uh, he's done this publicly. Uh, his, uh, his doctrine has carried him to some strange places. Billy Graham, once upon a time, embraced the truth and was uh, a fiery uh, preacher for Christ and sound in the doctrine. But he began embracing the ecumenical doctrine where you want to just kind of reach out and just take everyone in and work with them and so what he did was he ended up joining hands with the Catholics in the 1950s and then his doctrine of ecumenicity uh, in the 1970s they saw their numbers going down so he started joining hands with all the rock and rollers believe that Billy Graham uh, he invited in all of the, the rock and rollers, and, of course, that brought in a whole new crowd of some undesirables, but that brought their numbers back up, and that's all he wanted. Leona Choi was a great author. She was a, a Christian e- evangelical author, and uh, she got a hold of some um, strange doctrine, and she ended up uh, leaving uh, the evangelical uh, Christians, and she went and joined the Catholic Church. Um, There is a a prominent doctrine today, it's been out for a number of years, called the home church movement. The home church movement is not biblical. And what it's doing is it's pulling thousands of good Christians out of churches all over the world. So Paul writes about this. He says, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. Now, there's two adjectives he uses, diverse and strange. These adjectives describe different things. And so what I think Paul is getting at is two different kinds of doctrines. I think what he's getting at is diverse doctrines and strange doctrines. I don't think that both adjectives are referring to, to the, the one single noun. This is just how I see it. Now, diverse doctrines would be, uh, diverse means different in character or quality. And I'd like to suggest to you that what he may be getting at here are maybe some of the smaller differences. Don't be carried about with smaller differences than strange doctrines. The word strange means foreign, or we might even say odd. And so this would refer to big differences. For example, Jesus is not divine. He's a created being. That's a humongous, bad, big difference uh, in doctrine. Now, Jesus rebuked the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 for not separating themselves from the doctrine of Balaam. And the doctrine of Balaam is described in that chapter, Revelation chapter 2, as eating things sacrificed to idols and fornication. That was the doctrine of Balaam that was showing up in the church by about 90 A.D. The church in Smyrna started holding these doctrines and Jesus rebuked them sternly. He also rebuked them for having the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, that's patterned after a guy named Nicholas, who was one of the first deacons at the church of Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 6, Nicholas. And... uh, uh commentaries uh, seem to indicate that his doctrine was to compromise the truth, soft pedal and compromise the truth. Now that's sort of what the ecumenical doctrine is all about, that which Billy Graham is part of. Now, it's a good thing to know about these things. It's important that we know about them, but not to be consumed with them. In other words, don't be carried about with these things. And listen, I want you to know that it's even possible to be consumed over one good doctrine as well. I know more than one person who's very interested in uh, the, uh, the, the tribulation period and the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, a little bit of Ezekiel, a little bit of Isaiah, and so on, that are prophetic and talk about, oh, and Je- some in Jeremiah, that talk about those end times. And uh, these people that I know, they seem to be experts. They can tell you what these Bible verses say, and they can tell you what these different commentaries say. They can tell you what these radio personalities all have to say. But when you start asking them about other areas of the Christian life, they're hopeless. They, they just haven't studied and read their Bibles. But boy, are they ever on their hobby horse. And so that's a common word we use today is a hobby horse or a phrase or expression. So it's, it's good to know uh, about these doctrines, but not to be consumed with them not to be carried away with them. We need to have a balance in our Christian lives. So uh, we need good doctrine, doctrine that deals with salvation, doctrine that deals with the security of the believer, doctrine that deals with the Trinity, doctrine that deals with the Bible itself and what it is, Uh, doctrine about service, doctrine about uh, separation from the world, and so on. So look at verse 9 again. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established. Established with grace now he says it's a good thing that the heart be established remember the definition here of your heart the word heart refers to the center point or as far as your soul goes that would be the deepest point in your soul the depths of your soul that's where you make your decisions about things that are right and things that are wrong that's where you make your decisions for a life And so your heart is very important. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so very important that uh, we make our, our decisions properly in our heart. Very important. That's why we need good doctrine. Our hearts need to be established. The word established means made strong with truth and not error. In Ephesians 3, Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus and said that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And so again, here in verse 9, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. That's God's grace, folks. That's the grace of God. And that's something that you and I need every single day. If you're not consciously looking to God and trying to seek his face and obtain his grace for today, then you're missing out on so much. It's like if you're not praying God's hedge of protection around you, your family, the works of your hands, you're missing out. No wonder that the devil gets so many free shots at us Christians is because we're not asking and therefore not receiving God's hedge of protection. And likewise, if we're not asking God's grace, ye have not because ye... Ask not. And it's important that when we go to God in prayer every day that we be asking for certain things. And one of them is for God's grace. We need God's grace. Grace is his divine influence. Grace is his divine power. Grace is his ability to give you favor in someone else's eyes. Grace is God's um, uh, pushing of buttons and pulling of uh, ropes and, uh, and switches behind the curtain so that the doors of life open and certain other doors close for you, not every door you want to walk through because some of them are booby-trapped of the devil. They're marked push, and you go to push on them, and arr, arr, this thing won't open. Well, God's closing it because there's a bomb on the other side, or maybe the lion that walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We don't want to open that door. So God sovereignly in his love, he keeps some doors closed. Now, if you're the type that will take no, you're not going to take no for an answer, I'm boy, that door's locked, I'm going to go, and I'm, I'm going to get a battering ram. I, if that doesn't work, I'm going to go get some kind of big, Massey Ferguson tractor. I'm going to plow that door down. I, I'm going to get to what over on the other side of that, you, that may be famous last words for you. You may live the rest of your life to regret that you ever forced your way through and, and did that thing. And that applies to various things like jobs and who you marry and where you go and purchases. I remember hearing about a pastor. He's actually dead. He's gone to be with the Lord now a few years ago. But when he was a younger man, he didn't, he didn't seek the Lord in prayer about a purchase, and it had to do with aluminum siding. A salesman came around, knocked on his door, and convinced him that his house would be so much better if he had aluminum siding, and the value of his house would go up so much. And so uh, instead of taking time to pray about it, he just made the decision right away, and he took his pen, and he signed the contract, and they came and they put the aluminum siding on, and then came payday. He had to start paying for this thing. And he regretted it because it actually went on for, on a preacher's salary, you have to understand this, he paid for years for that aluminum siding. And the way he described it, I remember hearing him tell about this. He said, that aluminum siding, I paid and 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 I paid for that miserable aluminum siding. And his point was, he should have gone and prayed and prayed and prayed. If he had done that, he wouldn't have paid and paid and paid. And so, folks, we really need to pray God's grace. We have to have it, whether we're at work or school or at home in a marriage or raising kids or serving the Lord at church or whatever. We need God's grace. And our hearts need to be established Yes, they do. How, how can we do that? With God's grace. And that comes day by day. Uh, in Second 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So you need to ask yourself, are you strong in his grace? And so he goes on here in verse 9. He says, it's a good thing the heart be established with grace and not with meats. Now, remember, Paul was writing to uh, hebrew hebrew christians well the hebrews most of them i think would have been saved some of them were not saved according to what we've read in hebrews here in in the 13 chapters some of them wouldn't be saved it's like a bit of a mixed bag Uh, the church of corinth was a mixed bag of saved and unsaved and uh, there was many that were jewish christian in name only but still not converted but they were hanging around i guess with the christians now The legalistic Jews were really big on the meats and what you eat and what you can't eat and what you can do and what you can't do, and they were really hung up on those laws, ritual washings and many other things. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, he said, "'Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink "'or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon "'or of the Sabbath days.'" We've got a, a whole movement called the Seventh-day Adventists. You've heard of them, right? S-D-A. Years ago, in the Christian bookstores, when you went into the section on cults, you found the books on S-D-A right there. Nowadays, you goes in, into the modern bookstore, it's gone. They're not in there anymore. They've been accepted into mainstream Christianity. Years ago, you'd go into a Christian bookstore and you go into the cult section, you'd find books on Catholicism. Today, you go in the Christian bookstore and in the cult section, there's no Catholics at all. Why? Because the Catholics have bought up all the Christian bookstores. So that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. When I was in Bible college, a friend of mine had an uncle who was way high up in the RCMP. I was in the Bible college in the 70s. And you know that... Uh, our Prime Minister Trudeau, his father, Pierre Trudeau, was Prime Minister for, I think it was 14 years, wasn't it? Or was it more than that? Long time, anyhow. Some say too long, but anyhow, we're not here about that. But uh, he had some communist ties. He had a lot of you know bad stuff against him and he was campaigning to be a prime minister. And my friend in Bible college, whose uncle was way high up in the RCMP, told him, and he told me, see, (laughs) that's how good we got it, folks. (laughs) It's only third hand, but it's... (laughs) So he told me that the day after Trudeau got elected, I mean, there was a big fat file on Trudeau with all communist ties and different, you know, questionable things and stuff like that. The day after Pierre Trudeau got elected prime minister, that file disappeared. Gone like that. The day the Catholics bought the Christian bookstores, the Catholic books, you know, the Catholic cult books were gone out of those bookstores. Boy, it's a funny world we live in, isn't it? And so the the, the Jews there, getting back to the Jews, uh, they, uh, they would judge the, uh, the the saved Jewish people. They would judge them and they pressured them. Uh, the legalistic Jews were actually influencing the Jewish Christian believers to whom Paul was writing. And let's take a look at this quickly. Let's go back to Galatians. It's important that we see this because it's really an important part of the Book of Hebrews. Galatians chapter two. The um, <clears throat> legalistic Jews, also known as Judaizers. They were putting huge pressure on the uh, newly converted Jewish men and women to get back under the laws of Moses and things like that. So Galatians chapter 2, please look at verse 11. Here Paul says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now that's the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter. Verse 12, For before that, uh, certain certain from James, sorry, For before that certain came from James, this means from Jerusalem, James sent a few, and Peter was one of them. Uh, Earlier, though, he did eat with the Gentiles. So Peter was there early, and he ate. He sat down and ate with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he, that's Peter, withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled. Now, dissembling means trying to hide uh, the truth or, or a true likeness. That's what dissemble means. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with them insomuch that Barnabas, that's the famous Barnabas you've read about, also was carried about with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, so he came and he sat and he ate with them, that's what Paul is saying, and not as the Jews, why compelst thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? By separating himself from the Gentiles, Peter was sort of saying, okay, Gentiles, you're not doing it right, You know, we're the ones doing it right. So he had a dichotomy. He had a two-faced thing going on there. And he was afraid. That's why Peter did it. Sometimes people do that. I'll tell you how sometimes Christians do that. Christians get together, they go in a restaurant. Okay, who wants to pray? Oh, can I pray? Okay, you pray. All right. Thank you, Lord, for this food. And so then um, those same Christians go out to a restaurant with their unsaved friends from work and they order the food, and inside them they're saying, oh, I should pray, I should pray, I'm too scared to pray. Okay, I, I, I won't do it. God will forgive me. He, he's a forgiving God. I just won't pray this time. Or, you know, the old napkin drop. I've showed you that so many times where they, uh, they take their napkin, you know, from the table, the food gets there, and they take the napkin, and the Christian says, oh, I've dropped my napkin. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this food, and bless it to my body's use. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> they tuck it in the way they go. Well, we do that out of fear. We're crazy, I tell you, we're crazy. But it's fear that causes us to do a lot of those shenanigans. Peter was afraid, and that's why he came first eating with the Gentiles, then the other Jews came from Jerusalem, (gasps) he pulled back because of the pressure of those Jews. The Jews, the legalistic Judaizers, were putting pressure on the believing Jews. Now, if you turn back to the left of the book of Acts, chapter 15, you'll see this again. This was a big problem, folks, a huge problem back in the first century church. We sometimes think they didn't have problems. They had problems. Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15. Now we have here the Jerusalem council. The Jerusalem council was put together because the Jews were saying there's no way those Gentiles are saved because they're not keeping the law. And uh, there was a big uh, argument back and forth. And finally, Paul came and a few of his unsaved, I'm sorry, a few of his saved Gentile friends came along with him. And uh, what ended up happening was they determined that the Gentiles were saved because the Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit. If you remember back, Jesus promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. uh, Peter preached about it uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 about get saved and you'll get the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit came and they rejoiced and all that. Well, lo and behold, here are the Gentiles getting the very same Holy Spirit. And that was the clincher. That's why the Jews at Jerusalem decided, well, I guess they are saved after all because they have the same Holy Spirit we have. And when they saw that... They had to kind of say, oh, well, you know, I guess God knows what he's doing here. And they gave up trying to persecute the Gentiles to start coming under the laws of Moses. So they kind of left them alone, but they wrote them a letter. And this letter was an official letter from the Jerusalem Council, and it was sent out to all of the Gentile churches. And um, we'll just get to the part here in verse 29 that they write, uh, that you abstain from meats offered to idols... Now, remember, we looked at that. Jesus rebuked the church at at Smyrna for messing around with that stuff. And so they weren't supposed to do that. Abstain from blood. And to this day, we're not supposed to be drinking blood. Don't drink blood. If you're a hunter and you're going to go out and get your first kill, the uh, custom is you drink the blood of the ant. Don't do that. Don't do that. God's telling us not do that. Don't eat things sacrificed to idols, offered to idols. Don't drink blood. And from things strangled, it's kind of the same concept. And from, what's this word, fornication. Fornication was huge, huge business amongst the Gentiles. It was as common as common could be. And prostitution was a legalized business, a respected business in the Roman Empire. And all that fornication stuff. And the... Uh, uh, apostles were were saying stay away from that stay away from that stuff and that's good advice today People who get involved with that kind of stuff, they destroy themselves, they harden their hearts, it seems that they deaden their spirits. Uh, Often God has to bring chastening or even judgment with diseases, venereal disease, you know. That's all to do with fornication. HIV and AIDS, listen, I know someone's going to get mad at me for saying that, but that's uh, another judgment of God, I believe, um, on uh, fornication, all this... um, uh, sexual activity that ought not to be. So what we're saying here simply is that um, the Jews had a, had a bit of a history of going after the uh, Gentiles and also after the newly saved uh, other Jews and tried to pressure them to uh, get back under the laws of Moses. And the Mosaic Covenant was good for what it was designed for, but it was never designed to save a soul, It was mostly designed to to show the sinner his need. But uh, the new covenant, God started dealing with his people according to grace. Law was how God was dealing with his people for those 1,400 years. Christ died and rose again, and his... His blood, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. That's what he said, his very words. So that New Testament, that new will or agreement, that new covenant between God and his people was now grace. It wasn't based upon the laws and keeping all of the 600, 500 or 600 laws or something like that that were in the Old Testament. So again, going back to Hebrews, Paul is writing and he says that the heart needs to be established with grace and not with meats, verse 9, which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. No matter how many ritual baptisms, no matter how many uh, sacrificial um, uh, meats, whatever, are presented, they do not profit. Uh, Bottom line is, when people occupy themselves with legalistic things, there is no growth in grace. They do not grow and become closer to God. Verse 10, he comes right out and he says, we have an altar. Now, when he says we, he's not talking about the, the, the Jews and the Jewish heritage. He's talking about believers, believers. Folks, did you know that, that we have an altar? Did you know that? That's what Paul says right here. We have an altar. Believers have an altar. Where is it? Where is our altar? Our altar is in heaven. That's where our altar is. We, and by the way, it's a better altar than the Jews had on earth. We have an altar whereof they, he's talking about the unsaved Jewish priests, they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Those are the unsaved Jewish priests back in that first century that Paul was writing about, the unsaved Jewish priests. Now, this means that all saved people have a right to eat of that altar. To eat what? To eat the spiritual things of that altar. We have an altar. The Jews in Paul's day, while the temple was still up, they had an altar, and the priests that served that altar had a right to eat of those things of that earthly altar. We have an altar. They got no right to eat of our altar. Well, what kind of spiritual things do we eat? Well, number one, uh, you might want to think of, is uh, the Word of God. We consume the Word of God. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. uh, Paul, I'm sorry, Jeremiah said uh, that, he said, I found thy words and I did eat them. And so the word of God can be consumed. It can be meditated upon. Something else uh, that can be eaten is the will of God. Do you remember when Jesus was at the well, the woman at the well story, John chapter 4, Jesus was at the well. He witnessed to the woman. You remember that? And so she ran back to the city and started witnessing to her friends. Meanwhile, the disciples came and said, "Uh, Master, eat. And he says, well, I have meat to eat of that ye know not. Do you remember reading that? And then he said in John chapter 4, verse 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. So there's something else that we can eat of is the will of God. We can go to this altar and we have every God-given right to eat and consume the word of God. For almost... Uh, 14, 1500 years, whatever, that the Catholic Church has been in business, they've tried to ban the Bible. They've tried to keep the Bible away from people. And for hundreds of years, people were tortured and put to death if they owned a Bible. Uh, now, all of that has kind of changed since the 1960s and so on. The Catholic Church has had to do a reformation of itself in order to keep people, they were hemorrhaging people like crazy. But the Catholics were; Catholic church was trying to keep people away from the Bible. They were not allowed to read it and consume it. So we, we can read the Bible. We can do the will of God. And John chapter 6, verse 57, Jesus talked about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. That was part of his sermon to the Jews. That's why they turned and walked no more with him. That's in John 6 and verse 57. And so we can literally eat of Christ. The more that we... We have Christ uh, dwelling richly in us. The, The more that we're going to find and do the will of God and the more that things are going to go right. We have an altar. Verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary. Now the beasts he's speaking of, if you look back a page or two at chapter 10, you'll see it. Chapter 10 of Hebrews. Look at verse 4. It says what? Read it out loud. For it is not possible. Are we all there? Hebrews 10, 4, yes? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Let's start again. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So what are the beasts? What do you suppose they are? You can talk to me. You're allowed. Bulls. I heard bulls. I think I heard. What else? Someone say it? Goats. Goats, bulls and goats. That's what the verse said, didn't it? Right, now there's another uh, animal, of course. There's a couple of other animals. One is sheep, of course, but there's another one called a red heifer. The red heifer, are you familiar with the red heifer? That was the uh, very sacred uh, animal that was uh, taken outside and killed and burned and its ashes were used to purify things apparently they got that going i believe they got that going now over in israel they've been wanting for years to get the red heifer together because that has to do with the purification of the new temple they're going to build i think that they've got that they've had they've tried and failed a number of times and they get one and they find some fault with it that's ah, no good and they try and raise another one but i think last i heard they've got that maybe we're close to the coming of the lord we'll We'll sure find out. Okay, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary. Now that's talking about the Holy of Holies. By the high priest for sin. That's the day of atonement when the high priest gets involved and brings the blood of the bull and the goat and brings it right into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles it seven times on the mercy seat. This is that one day of atonement that the high priest himself gets involved here. Uh, And then he says here, and and are, are burned without the camp. You read about that in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 16. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priests, by the high priest for sin, are burned without the camp. Now he's about to now make the comparison between these animals that are taken outside of the camp and Jesus, who was taken outside the city. So he's about to show us the comparison. But I want you to see in the next couple of verses, you got your three C's of the book of Hebrews here in front of you. You've got Christ in verse 12, the covenant in verse 13, and verses 14, 15, you've got commitment. So He just said in verse 11 about these beasts that are taken out of the camp. Verse 12, wherefore, Jesus also. Now, Jesus was following the pattern of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Wherefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. You know, he spilled his blood. He shed his blood for us out there on the cross. Outside of the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is a strong argument right here against Calvinism. Calvinism believes that Jesus shed his blood only for the elect. Now, the Bible talks about the elect, and it's a good Bible word, but um, the Calvinists say that Jesus didn't die for all the world. And so, uh, you know, when you're talking to a lost sinner, you can't say that Jesus died for you because you don't know if they're one of the elect or not. And so that's sinful of you to say such a thing. You can't say that Jesus died for the whole world because he didn't, they say. They say he only died for the elect, a certain little group, a little flock, all the rest. He didn't shed his blood for them. Why in the world would he do that if they're going to reject him? Uh, and uh, then they talk about the elect as being something that's on the uh, divine side, the sovereign side, not the human side. They reject any kind of human uh, intervention or or human say-so. Man has nothing to do with it, they say. Uh, these are all people that God has divinely for some reason, who knows what reason, that God has divinely elected him and not the one beside him, and her and not the one beside her, and this one and that one and not these two, and one over there and one over here, and God, for who knows whatever reason, only known to God, he's elected these few here, and those are the only ones that Jesus died for. That's a strong uh, point in Calvinism, Calvinistic belief that began with uh, a guy named Calvin. He lived and died in the 1500s. He was a Catholic. He came out of the Catholic Church, part of the Reformation movement. But this here that says, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood is a powerful argument that Jesus died for the world and not just for the elect. When the uh, high priest went in on the day of atonement with the blood of bulls and goats, that blood sanctified all of the Jewish people. And you know this, that not all of the Jewish people were saved, only some of them. And yet that blood sanctified on that Day of Atonement all of the Jewish people. In the analogy, it's a strong argument that Jesus died for the whole world. Truth is, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The all means all the world. To the Calvinists, the word all means all the elect. (laughs) For God so loved the world. To us, that means every person in the world. To the Calvinist, it's the world of the elect. You see how they do it? (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? So here we have the Lord Jesus. It says he, remember the animals were taken outside the camp? Verse 12, he suffered without the gate. That means outside of Jerusalem. On a hill of shame. Do you remember what the name of the hill was? Called Golgotha. What's another name for it? Calvary it means same thing. The, it's the, the, um, the, the hill of the, the, the skull. It kind of had, apparently, they say, had resembled a skull of some sort, but that doesn't matter. It was a hill of shame, some kind of place of a skull, they say. Verse 13, we get into now the, um, uh, the covenant. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him. Truth is, folks, wherever Jesus is, that's where we ought to be. Uh, I know right now he is essentially in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he's coming back for us. He's going to take us to be with himself, and that's where we want to be. And I hope that your heart has been yearning to be with your Savior, because his heart is yearning to be with you. We, we are somewhat separated, but n- not for long. And so let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. Now, why would Paul write that? I suggest to you that what he's saying is making a a separation here. He's referring maybe to the Mosaic sacrificial system. Remember, he's he's writing to the Hebrews, and I think he's saying, leave it behind. There needs to be separation. Leave it behind. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him, unto Jesus. Where? Without the camp. True salvation ought to result in separation from the world and separation from broken-down religious systems. Someone is a Catholic and they get saved. Praise the Lord, they get saved. But as evidence of their salvation, they ought to come out from underneath the Pope's big toe. They ought to get out of a broken down religious system that damns men's souls to hell. There ought to be a separation uh, to get out of that sort of thing. And so verse 13, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. What does that mean? simply this, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The unsaved world will mock and scorn the Christian man or woman who's trying to live his or her life for Jesus. You know, if ever you want to make an interesting experiment, go up to your friends, your unsaved friends, and say to them, I just want you to know that I'm saved and I want to live my life for God and then watch their eyes. Some of them will look down. Some of them, their eyes will roll. Some of them will look away, right? Unsaved people, they don't don't understand that kind of English. (laughs) That's a foreign kind of English to them. They don't understand those words. And what it does is it starts the rumor mills and they're talking all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, you don't have to go up to all your friends and say, I'm saved, and from here on I'm going to live my life for God. You don't have to do that. But listen, when you're in the company of the unsaved and and one of them says, hey, I've got a real filthy, dirty joke. This is the filthiest one I've ever heard. You ought, not, you ought to get out of there. You ought to get out of there or you ought to say, hey, uh, time out here. Do you think we could maybe dispense with that? kind of thing oh what's wrong with you some holy Joe? no because uh, I'm a Christian and uh, this is not the sort of thing that uh, that I think is right I don't I I, I don't like that sort of thing and you're letting your light shine and then some you know devil's egg is going to call you names or something like that that's what the world does because there's a certain reproach to being a Christian And you have to remember that it's not just for 2,000 years ago in first century, you know, um, the Roman world where you're going to live for Jesus and there's reproach on you. No, it's for today and it's for anywhere in the world, including Canada, including British Columbia, including Surrey, British Columbia. You live for Jesus and there's a reproach on you. I'm not talking about going out and being crazy and stupid and so on and jumping around the freeway with signs saying, turn or burn. You know, craziness like that is, is uh, you know, it's out to lunch. But just simply living a godly life and trying to separate yourself from evil. And if someone, you know, wants to share something filthy or dirty with you, don't chuckle and go along with it. No. Uh, you do yourself damage, you do dishonor to your Lord, but you ought to stop them and say, you know, I remember once, this is before I was saved. I remember the next door neighbor, I was over there and they had their grandmother there and uh, uh, she seemed like a nice old lady, but uh, I said to her, uh, oh, I have a joke for you. Now, this is before I became a Christian. I said, I have a joke for you. And she said, oh, I hope it's a dirty one. This was a lady that was, I think, in her 70s. And I was uh, a teenager, a young teenager. And so I said, I have a joke. And she said, I hope it's a dirty one. Imagine that. Someone that would say such a thing like that. 70 years of living a worldly life. And all she wanted to hear was dirty things and crazy things like that. Now, I don't know, maybe she was just funning with me, but it, it stuck with me. You know, she should, she should never have said those words. She should never have done it. But I just took it for face value that she's a dirty person. That's what it told me. It didn't really, you know, bother me at the time, but years later I became a Christian and things like that, you know, and they come to your memories. Wow, I can't believe that. Wow. You know, when you come out of the, the pig pen and get yourself cleaned up a bit, you can't believe what your former life was like. You can't believe I used to live in that stuff. I used to slop around in that swill. I used to gargle that stuff. Ugh, man, I can't believe I used to live like that. That's sort of how you should feel when you get saved. There should be this separation, this coming out, this cleaning up. And in the process of doing that, the world who's back in the pig pen starts throwing mud at us as they're calling us names, there's a certain reproach. Now, don't go out looking for trouble. You don't have to, because it will find you. All you got to do is just live a godly Christian life, and it will start finding you. And when it does, then say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I must be doing something right. Thank you, Lord. I've made the devil mad. Thank you, Lord. That's a good testimony that I'm living my life for Jesus. When they're You know, reproaching you. Charles Simeon, he was born in England in 1759. He grew up to become an evangelical preacher and a good one. Now, it's said that at the beginning of his ministry, he encountered such a torrent of abuse and opposition that his very spirit seemed absolutely crushed. And of course, he had thoughts of quitting the ministry and running away, but he turned to the Bible for some encouragement and some direction. And, you know, his name was Charles Simeon. He turned to the Bible and his eyes fell upon a passage in Matthew 27, verse 32. It says, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And the similarity between his name, Charles Simeon, and Simon. In Matthew 27, the similarity of names caught his attention, and he was moved to new courage with the thought of his oneness with the sufferings of Christ. It made him feel close to Jesus, and it strengthened him, and he went on and had a fantastic ministry. Chapter 13, verse 14, Paul tells us right out. He says, for here we have no continuing city. That means, folks... This world is not our home. This is not where we belong. We are passing through. And by the way, this world is perishing. You know that. This world is not getting any better. It's getting worse. And as the tribulation comes, um, these rough days of harsh weather and uh, rumors of terrorism and uh, economic systems going up and down, these are the good old days. Right now, what you and I are living, these are the world's good old days because when the tribulation comes, it's going to be so much worse. Things are going to be so bad, so bad, and they're going to get worse and worse and progressively worse, like incredibly so. People are going to just long for these good old days of 2018 when gas was so high and houses were so high. But in the tribulation, it's going to be just... Bonkers. Crazy. The world is crazy. Jeff Bezos. Does anyone know who that is? Jeff Bezos. Who's What is it? Amazon. He's a guy who owns Amazon. Just for fun, I looked up his net worth. You know, Bill Gates. Well, let's wait to start back a bit here. Uh, What's that guy with the uh, electric car? Musk. Elon Musk. Right he's worth something like i think 30 30 billion and then there's the facebook guy zuckerman zuckerman zucker zuckerberg zuckerberg yeah yeah he's worth about 60 billion and then there's bill gates he's worth about 90 billion and then there's jeff bezos he's worth 167 billion dollars you believe that I was tempted to call him up, ask him if he'd like to donate a billion dollars to our church, because that's about what it'll cost to buy 20 acres and put up 10 buildings or something and really get us going. But a billion bucks. Crazy, crazy. What a crazy world we live in, don't you think? Absolutely bonkers. And uh, I think we're going to just see things just keep escalating and going crazier and crazier. That's my prediction. I'm not a prophet. Some say I'm a deficit, but... Um, I do believe that things are going to get worse and worse. I believe that. You see, we have no continuing city here. That's exactly true. If it's ever been true, that is true today. He says, but we seek one to come. Where is it going to come from? Anyone know? Where is it going to come from? You can say it. It starts with the letter H. Heaven. Heaven. It's only two places start with the letter H. This one's heaven. That's where our new Jerusalem is going to come from. See, truth is we have no continuing city here, but we seek one to come. Verse 15, by him therefore, that's by Jesus. The hymn refers to Jesus. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise. By him, by Jesus. We must live for God by the power of Jesus Christ within us. You cannot live a Christian life on your own power, your own strength, your own steam. You can't do it. It's not there to be done. Only, listen, the Christian life is Christ's life. It's not my life. It's not your life. It's his life. The Christian life is Christ's life. Well, who's going to live Christ's life? I'll give you a hint. Christ. He's the only one that can live his life, right? Or wrong. Is it right? He's the only one. He's the only one that can live his life. And he will do it through us, through his power. So, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. David wrote in Psalm 33:12 that praise is comely. You know, for the righteous, for the upright, praise is comely. And by the way, it becomes especially beautiful when we offer God praise in the midst of suffering and persecution. If you're having problems and troubles and sore spots and all kinds of things going wrong, give God praise. Give him praise because it means so much more. It's so much more valuable to him. I told you the story that I read about back in Bible college, and I think it was 50 years old by that point. This old couple down in Indiana, in the state of Indiana, in the States, this old couple, every Christmas, they put up a few Christmas decorations, and they put up this one old card, handmade by a child, many years old, like 50 years old, held together many times with Scotch tape, and they put this up in a place of prominence. And the story behind that card is that their son, as a little boy in school, made this Christmas card for mom and dad. And on his way home, a couple of bigger boys challenged him and took the card and ripped it up. And that little boy fought like a tiger for that little card that he made for his mom and his dad. And the little boy suffered, a black eye and a bloody nose, and he got beat up quite a bit. But he came home and he had all the pieces. And when his parents realized what his boy went through for that card, that gift for them. It became the most precious and important thing in their lives. And so every Christmas, they carefully put it up in a place of prominence. When you go through persecution and suffering, and you give God praise and glory, and you see, it even says giving of thanks, the end of the verse, it is worth so much more. Praise him for the good things. But when you go through the tough times, praise him. You don't understand why it's so tough. You don't understand half the things you're going through. But by faith, you give glory and honor to God. And you praise him and you thank him. And it means so much to the heavenly father that you would trust your life to him. He will really bless you for it. Now, why ought we to maintain good doctrine? That's the admonition for tonight. To main, Be careful to maintain good doctrine. Why? It's because it defines who we are, folks. And I, I suggest to you that um, it, uh, it absolutely puts God first and foremost... Good doctrine is first learned in church. It's learned in personal Bible study, and then it's lived in daily life. Tonight, we've learned about being established in grace. We've learned about feasting at the altar in heaven. We've learned about the reproach of Christ. We've learned about separation from the world. We've learned about giving God praise and thanks. That's all good doctrine. Our job is to go out and live it, And next week, God willing, we're going to look at the the last of the four careful mandates, and that is being careful to maintain Christian behavior. Let's look to the Lord now in prayer.